Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, on Real Fun DC. So for those of you tuning in for the first time, you may know me from the list, areyouonit.com. It's an online e-zine here in the DC metro area. We cover everything that's happening in the food, wine, spirit, beer, hospitality industry. We have a calendar chock full of events that are no longer just local because so much is virtual. So you can check out everything from wine tastings to cheese tastings to dinners and etc. that are happening all around the country. You also may know me from Foodie and the Beast. We just celebrated our 12 year anniversary. That's my husband David and I on air on 1500. That's a food and wine variety show. Lots of food, lots of fun, lots of booze. Uh, although not lately, uh, but uh, it's a great, fun, action-packed show. And more recently, like three years ago, I launched Industry Night. So this was originally out of the Line Hotel. Um, they had a fabulous radio station in the lobby, um, which is a design element I'd like to get into later. And um, But right now, because of COVID, that station has shuttered its doors. And I am so lucky and incredibly fortunate because uh, Kelly Collis and Tommy McFly on Real Fun DC invited me to join their platform. So here we are, Industry Night with Nikki Nellis on Real Fun DC. And I'm really excited about the show we're gonna talk about today. Um, Allison Cook is a good friend. We've known each other a very long time and she has a really cool, job. She um, is the Director of Hospitality Design and Principal for CORE, and it's an architecture and design firm. Allison, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, if anybody who is listening has been to restaurants like The Roost or Mini Bar or Bar Mini or Centralina, or maybe you've been in a hotel like a Hilton property, chances are you have seen something that Allison and her team at have done. But not only that, everywhere you go, we are surrounded by design. So Allison, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit about core architecture and design and what it is you actually do. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, so yes, we are based here in Georgetown and we've been around for almost 30 years. I haven't been there the full 30 years. Um, but You're like 12, obviously. Yes, obviously. I'm, I'm, I'm ageless. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm one of three partners and our team is just over 20 people, um, again, based in Georgetown. And I would say about 30% uh, of our revenue and our work is hospitality based. So that ranges anywhere from um, fast casual, fast casual prototypes. Uh, we did cotton and reed distillery. We've done, um, again, you mentioned Hilton. So we do a lot of work with hotel groups, large hotel groups on kind of their food and beverage focus concepts, full service restaurants, fine dining, kind of all across the board. Uh, the other 60% of our work actually is base building work. So it could be public libraries, it could be um, adaptive reuse of buildings or new multifamily buildings. So it's really cool. The thing I like about what we do 
is that we really blend a lot of practice groups. And so when I'm speaking about kind of the retail and hospitality piece and how that affects the, the ground plane and a neighborhood and the planning of a larger building, my business partners are also thinking kind of from the outside in. So we're just working on different scales, but I think our practice groups all inform one another. So um, my focus is in my background is in interior design while my partners are in architecture. So I think that's a really great blend and our team is super, super cross-trained. So we have people that can do restaurants and then they can hop over and work on an apartment building and it just all kind of blends together. I think a good example you just mentioned the roost that just opened up at blackbird so we finished that um, and we actually worked with the developer to do the unit interior design of the apartments and the amenity space design but then we collaborated with neighborhood restaurant group on the roost on the ground floor so that was a really great example of how it all kind of comes together um, holistically in a building so that in a nutshell is kind of what we do but we work with again that broad range of projects in the hospitality business um, and a lot of operators so they could be anywhere from like a restaurant group that's super super experienced and has built out like hundreds of restaurants, or it could be somebody that's like a first time operator um, in a smaller business. So we have experience with all of those kind of clientele, which I think uniquely kind of positions us in this, this strange world that we live in right now in hospitality. <laughs> you brought up something really interesting for people, for the lay person, mm -hmm. you know, understanding, like if you look at the DC landscape, right? You're driving through new areas, the wharf, uh, yards, mm -hmm. uh, even Capitol Hill areas, Bloomingdale, Shaw. There's there's cranes everywhere. There is building, you know, let's go pre-COVID. We're totally talking pre-COVID here. But there's yeah. building going on everywhere. And um, okay. so there are cranes all over the place and we're seeing all this building. Right, so we've got all this architecture and all this design, and I don't think people think about like how it all comes together, how you work with um, the neighborhoods, how you work with uh, the landlords, how you work with the restaurants, like how you come up with overall aesthetics. So how do you all work together to, to create the, the end game, so to speak? Sure. I mean, starting at the very largest scale. So when we're working with a developer at the onset of like a, a huge development job, right, or a building itself, we're having those conversations with them about like, how is this contributing to the neighborhood and the area? Um, you know, we're also trying to make sure that the finances make sense for them as far as the return on investment. So if it's a multifamily project, how many number of units do they need to get in there and what's the appropriate mix for the market? So looking at that from a residential landscape kind of perspective, and then we're also trying to figure out, okay, what are, how do they want to position this property? Um, not only to the people living in the building, but also to the people walking past it on the street and how is it again contributing to that neighborhood? So what's that right retail mix that they want to incorporate in that proper kind of amenity mix? So we're talking conceptually, a lot of times they will have um, a real estate broker or somebody that's gonna work with them to position the project strategically that has a lot of metrics on the neighborhood, comps and so forth. So that is coming from a place of uh, metrics and information from that side of it uh, but we're also we're also 
also having a conversation where we use words and imagery to kind of get on the same page to create kind of a mood for the property. Um, it works similarly for an office building as well, but we're really trying to figure out from my perspective to how that interior design on the ground plane needs to be demised, not only for the retail mix that they want, but then also you talk about future proofing, right? So if a restaurant comes in um, and they're there for three years, it fails and you're left with a space that only has food service exhaust for one tenant on the ground floor, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden you need to demise that space into two parts so that you can have two restaurants that need exhaust that massively affects your building or creates, you know, um, infrastructure complications. So we're also talking about that with developers, you know, future proofing kind of their buildings in that way. Um, so we work on that. Yeah. That's brilliant um, because, and I think we should get into that in a little bit when we sort of talk about post pandemic and the kinds of things that you're offering mm -hmm. to clients or perspectives because thinking about the future when you're doing a building or a restaurant at this point is now, I, I really think it's more important than ever. Do you know what I mean? Like it's so important to say to a builder or somebody who's going to rent out space. Okay. It's a restaurant. It's big enough to be two restaurants, but it's a big restaurant today. Maybe it's going to be two restaurants later. How do you want to bulletproof this? Because you know, those are things that people don't think about with HVACs and uh, exhaust systems and things of the nature. So let's talk a little bit about pre-pandemic. I mean, prior to the shutdown of the world, this was one of the hottest uh, restaurant uh, cities in the country. There's still a ton of building, but there was so much building, so much coming down the pike. Um, and while I think outdoor cafes and things of that nature were always have really become priorities in this city, you know, 30 years ago, not so much, but now everybody wants some sort of outdoor space. I, you know, what was happening for you then? Like, what were you working on? What was happening? And then what was the pivot, you know, March 15th? Yeah. Well, so, and I'll try to touch briefly on like the various types of hospitality projects that we were doing then as well. So pre-pandemic, totally agree. I mean, I think we all felt like, can this last, you know, this insane pace that we're all at opening restaurants and so forth. And I, I think we were kind of at a, a tipping point in a way, the market, the real estate market was already crazy competitive. You know, people were fighting so hard for spaces. Um, construction costs were very high because people were busy. You know, they didn't have to take projects. The interesting thing about that, though, is that client build-out budgets that they were coming to us with were remaining kind of the same as what we had seen for like the last five to seven years. So you have construction costs increasing, but people are not um, adding necessarily to the build-out budgets that they're building into their overall budget. Um, so then we're starting to have to kind of dial back on design. And that's not to say that you have to spend a boatload of money to have a compelling restaurant space. That's certainly not true because, you know, you can be very creative in where you use the money. Um, but there was kind of that issue, you know, at play. But I think that's interesting because we know that uh, prices per square foot were going through the roof legit right and right. now you're saying that you know construction costs were going up and up so if you know what you're gonna have to pay every month and you know 
uh, what your construction is going to cost, something has to take a hit. I mean, if you don't have carte blanche, if you don't have, you know, Kardashian style money, right. something somewhere, you know, we're not going to a private island, uh, something somewhere has got to take a hit. And it's surprising to me that it's design. Yeah. And in some cases, you know, we all know that restaurants are expensive to build too. I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a one-time cost, right? To the construction cost because you're likely not going to renovate for five you know ten years or so mm -hmm. um but they have a lot of infrastructure you know we talked about the hvac systems briefly and all of the utilities and then building out a, just a kitchen before you even get to the front of house space that a guest sees um they're really pricey so i think there was something that had to give in that that model because they were too expensive to build for the ROI. You know, people were not making their money back fast enough. Mm -hmm. um, so we were on kind of this verge that I think we were all kind of like, oh, what are, how's this gonna play out? Um, the restaurants that we were doing around that time were roughly around 3,000 to 4,500 square feet or so. Um, so not a lot of huge ones. We did have some that, like we had one that was 13,000 square feet that we we're working on that's under construction now. Um, also outdoor, cafe space, as you mentioned, was like becoming crazy important to people. So as they're in this competitive real estate market looking for spaces, everybody's vying for outdoor space mm -hmm. um, already. And we were seeing people, once they got that outdoor space, were pumping more money into that actually than they had before. Well, I was going to ask that when they wanted that outdoor space, were they looking to really activate that outdoor space or were they, you know what I mean? Like some people just set up tables and chairs and a couple of plants and some people really go all out. So what were you seeing pre-pandemic with people in their patios? Pre-pandemic, I think, depending upon the neighborhood, but also the design was getting, you know, everybody's like, oh, have you seen this new place, this new place? So everything is like, you gotta go check it out. It's so exciting. So there was pressure on operators, I think, to do like, spend a decent amount of money on those outdoor cafes. So we were seeing people putting in the outdoor heaters, you know, hard piping gas to fire pits, spending a lot of money on the ambient lighting, um, you know, enclosures and things like that. To, again, extend like their square footage of, of um, space that they can use for diners and, and generating revenue. So that was already definitely at play, I think before the pandemic. Um, but we, it was interesting, any fast casual concepts that we were working on for people, they were treating the delivery driver as a client at this point already as well. So they were saying, you know, our walk-in customers, our pre-order app customers, they're all great, but like now the Uber Eats driver can rate us too. So we need this fast casual experience to be really intuitive and easy for them. Um, so that was kind of already happening as well. I think with the regard to food halls, we were seeing some struggling, failing, lots were opening. Well, wait, um, and I'm going to hold you there because I yeah. do want to talk about food halls, but we have to take a quick break. Sure. Uh, when we come back, let's, we'll get to food halls. Let's talk about the pivot of design, you know, really let's not talk about the last two months. Let's talk initially because there were some things that really had to be dug into and then we can get into now. Um, this is Nikki Nellis on Real Fun DC Industry Night. We'll be back in just a sec. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. 
And we're back, Nikki Nellis, Real Fun DC. This is Industry Night. I am talking with Allison Cook of Core Architecture and Design. And you know, you walk into a restaurant and you just think, it is all here for me. It looks pretty, or geez, why didn't they put that light over there? Or why, it's always, why didn't they? Why didn't they do X? Well, chances are there, there is a reason. And given what's happening with the pandemic and outdoor dining and all these new restaurants that are supposed to open or hopefully open or who knows what's gonna happen, uh, there is a design, architecture and an aesthetic involved. And Allison can speak to all of that. So Allison, again, thank you for joining us today. Sure. So when, uh, right before we took our break, we wanted, I really wanted to sort of dive into like when you realized that, you know, restaurants were shutting down, what did you realize you had to do to help current and past clients? Because I assume past clients were calling you up being like, um, what do we do, right? Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's so true. It was like mid-March, the faucet shut off. You know, we had a lot of projects that went on hold if they were in early design phases, but we had some that were, the design had been completed, but we still needed to do the drawings. So those continued on for the most part. And then people that were in construction, of course, on their restaurants, they were like, oh, okay. So, uh, you know, are we gonna have supply chain issues? Should I just move forward with construction? Most of them did in fact choose to do that, but then, the idea of when they might open and at what capacity they're trying to navigate as well. So we did kind of shift pretty quickly to talking with clients, you know, they started thinking about how can we safeguard our spaces. Um, once they got through the initial impact of like having to close, having to pivot and try to figure out how they could change their business model slightly, either to delivery, take out those types of things, or whether they were just going to close all together and kind of wait it out. Um, I feel like it was about around early May where you started seeing these kind of reopening and phase conversations, some areas of the country starting to reopen. And that's when they really started to examine things like their HVAC systems. Um, and then also guest perception and guest attitudes around returning to dine-in. So we had a lot of conversations with operators about what they could do with their spaces to modify the filters in their HVAC systems and add some of the UV lighting. Um, but that is of course cost prohibitive. Can we talk about that a little bit? Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too technical, but how legit, like what is it about the HVAC systems that the filtration, like what is it about those that people can put in? And what about the lighting? I mean, how does that all apply to me, the diner and being safe? Sure, so I'll try to keep it like pretty um, high level, but the UV lighting no, is a- Low level, low level. Yeah, low, low level, level. low level. <laughs> so, the filters that are within the air handling units and restaurants, obviously they filter the junk out of the air. So what you're trying to do is you're basically inserting a more thick, robust filter into that unit. So it's filtering out more before it gets recirculated out into the dining space because some of the air in the dining space is recirculated and then you're required to introduce fresh air, a percentage by the building code um, that's mixed with that air. So not everything that's pumped back into the space is fresh. It is recirculated. So those filters will help to filter it, but also the most effective too is to actually put the UV light 
within the ductwork. So when the air is traveling back out, that's also killing the virus um, before it is recirculated into the air. And a lot of um, units cannot accommodate those filters. So you're kind of, if you've already got a unit and it's not big enough to hold the filter, or it's going to create too much of an airflow issue and a pressure drop, you're kind of stuck, you know, and you can't really upgrade your system in those instances. So uh, people are kind of hemmed in with what they've got in place already, as well as like the cost considerations of, of upgrading those things. Well, especially since if you're not bringing in any money, regardless of the, you know, extra help maybe some people got from the government or whatever, but if you're not making any money, how are you supposed to make those? Right. 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 So it's uh, really hard. Now, I know you work with the James Beard Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, so what kind of stuff were you doing with them early on? I know you, I, we did a couple of webinars too, which is core, just as informative as a way of, you know, keeping everybody up to date on the things they can do. Is that what you were also doing with James Beard? Yeah, so James Beard, we were serving as a resource. So any chefs in their network, um, we said, feel free to reach out to us. Um, the same thing with females in business that I'm really involved in. They have a conference every year and they have an amazing network of women in the food and beverage industry. So served as a resource to them as well. So just on a national level, helping chefs that got linked in um, with me that way to just even look at any floor plans they had for restaurants. I talked with a chef operator as an example in Georgia who had five to six restaurants. And she's like, we're being told we can open like next week. And I feel completely unsafe and unready to do this. Like, what do I, how do I even go about assessing this? So really quickly looked through her like open table floor plans and helped her identify like areas that could create congestion, you know, how she might be able to do a few of those little DIY things with like arranging the furniture for socially distanced tables. So we did a few socially distanced floor plans for people and those were not necessarily for them to reopen. It was also for them to take a look and be like, oh my God, I'm only getting 25% of my seat count. Like it's just not worth it from a safety perspective for the potential revenue I'm making. So those were the kinds of conversations we were having um, on a national level with some chefs. Uh, and then as far as our two webinars that we did, we kind of stepped back and we said, all right, we've got some downtime. Let's think about things that operators should be considering for a safe reopening. So one of the webinars was focused on some of those things that they could implement um, for safe reopening. And a lot of that was, again, focused on knowing that people don't have a lot of money to throw around, if any. So what are some of those DIY solutions or just signage, like guest communication, anything that you can do to implement um, and helping them reassess if it is worth reopening partially or if they're better off just kind of waiting it out and um, opening in full when they can. Well, I think signage and guest communication is so important, not just what you do when you come into the restaurant, but you know, what's on your web, what's on your social media, how are you communicating um, your safety efficiency to the public, right? Like in, especially in the DC metro area, it's pretty important to everybody here that not only are we going to have a safe dining experience, but that the employees are going to be safe, right? Like it's, there's multiple things on the table. It's not just, am I safe? Are, are you safe? Are you going to be safe? Is the, is the maitre d' going to be safe? You know, is the chef going to be safe? It's, it's, it's an imperfect, um, it's an imperfect system. <laughs> on, I mean, on it's work. 
probably right about that because what little money people had to spend on safety measures, if the guest doesn't know that, you're not getting credit for it and you're not preparing people for the experience they're gonna have at that restaurant. So our mantra was always like, share it, communicate it with your guests, especially before they arrive so that they know mm -hmm. what they can expect, what behavior expect you're expecting from the guest and what they can expect from your servers and your staff. Well, so now I want to go back to something you said earlier and that and you said food halls. You said there was a food hall fatigue. And I feel like nationally, that goes without saying. I feel like in DC, there was lots of talk about food halls. I mean, we have, you know, Union Market, we have La Casecha, we um uh the roost just opened. And I know there was lots of talk about these other ones like opening. But they they haven't right am i missing ones am i not thinking about all of them i guess they're more in the suburbs right there's the there's like um i can't the block i there are a couple but are people like because i here's the thing i think when it comes to food halls it's a very um uh shades of gray is it a food hall or a food court a food hall or a food court nobody wants to go to a food court that that's that's a that's a dead concept but a food hall is is interesting so what what makes the difference right yeah so i think um the mix of vendors obviously is really important right and so i tend to and i think most people associate the idea of a food hall with more local operators where you're getting more of that texture of what's available in that local area uh, and I think that that was something that neighborhood restaurant group, of course, like executed perfectly on the mix of um, operators they have in there is great and also just the variety. So I think that and in terms of specifically what we tried to do there with them was making every stall have its own identity, right? So it doesn't feel just so uniform, right? And you're just changing out signage, like you have different materials that signal what the food concept is about and also at the roost you know rather than lining everything up we sort of interrupted the space with the big bar in the center for show of hands and you kind of turn the corner there's this idea of exploration when you're in that space mm -hmm. um so i think the notion of something that feels a little bit more upscale experientially allows you that opportunity to explore and find things. Um, well, and I will interrupt you to say that having been to that space, and it is pretty fabulous, um, what I was most impressed by was sort of its girth, right? It's wide. And, um, and yes, obviously, Neighborhood Restaurant Group knows how to bring in, you know, Shop Made DC. You know, it's not just there are sit-down restaurants, there's a sushi place, like there's a beer place. I mean, it's it's very them, but it's got a, a coffee shop. Like it has a little bit of everything you would want, you know, at a like as a destination place to go walk around, which I think some food halls, that's where they failed. Like Union Market works because there's stuff to do, right? You can walk around, you can get a couple things to eat, uh, get something to drink, you can walk into Salt and Sundry, like there's things to do. I think when you go, like the block up on Rockville Pike, it's for restaurants, you know, for restaurants, it's just food, food and drinks. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but then you're just going for that. You're not going to walk around and hang out. 
Right, right. It's a little bit more of an, its own island out there when you go to the block, right? You're <laughs> going to the destination. Um, I think a lot of the other food halls you mentioned and, um, you know, the Roost is defined as more of a culinary clubhouse. Is yes. To describe it, right? So the terminology. <laughs> they're a little bit more a part of the fabric of the neighborhood. You kind of discover them in themselves too. And then at the same time, they're neighborhood anchors. Mm-hmm. Well, and an amenity, going back to what you were talking about earlier, when you were talking about, you know, these new buildings, they all, you know, especially for people who want to live there, it's what amenities are you offering, right? So it's a great amenity to say, yes, and you have the roost downstairs and, you know, or ABC pony downstairs, or, you know, everybody's looking for ways to to really uh, showcase not just the architecture and these amazing apartment buildings and complexes, but also this lifestyle, right? That you will have when you're there. The only thing I do think is interesting, and you can totally talk to this, is that part of that lifestyle is like communal spaces, like amazing roof decks and amazing pools and, you know, like places to hang out inside. And now you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. There are a lot of like empty spaces just sitting there right now. And it'll be really interesting how that evolves. Um, oh, it's such a challenge. It truly is a challenge. And we're all hopeful that the vaccine's gonna kick that back into gear and you can use those spaces. But I think that just underscores the importance of the outdoor space, like the variety of indoor outdoor gathering spaces mm -hmm. um, as we move forward in, in planning these buildings and hospitality spaces. Well, so let me take a quick break and we come back. Let's talk about the, the concepting of outdoor space because even though you're outside, they still have to be socially distanced. I mean, there's a there's still a lot of rules and regulations that have to be followed. Um, this is Nikki Nellis. I'm live on Real Fun DC on Industry Night. We'll be back in just a sec. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. <sighs> Serving up thought for food. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, it's Nikki Nellis on Industry Night on Real Fun DC. I am talking with Allison Cook of CORE um, Architecture and Design. We're talking about architecture and design during a pandemic, especially as it relates to the hospitality industry. And so, you know, now that we're here in October, almost November, a lot of changes are taking place for the restaurant industry specifically. Um, a lot of it has to do with outdoor dining or outdoor engagement. I mean, bars, it's going to be tough for bars. I mean, you and I both know that. Um, I don't know how a bar, I don't know how a bar activates, you know, yeah. you can't, the whole point of a bar is to cram people in and get drinks and be tight together and that can't happen. But how are you helping people with their outdoor design, especially as it relates to chillier weather. Yes, so, you know, DC had that grant recently, so people could apply for a grant to winterize their outdoor spaces as much as possible. Mm -hmm. We did, I was really excited to see DC's response in allowing kind of those parklets in parking spaces um, and how creative people have really gotten about that. You know, 
painting the barriers that DDOT puts down for them, um, you know, outdoor plantings and things. And so I am really excited to see how we move into winter. I think you're going to see a lot of like, I don't know if it's necessarily safe for them to provide blankets, but like BYO blanket and, you know, all fire pits and things like that and heaters. I know there's probably already a run on propane tanks like for outdoor heaters. So if you're a restaurateur, you are, haven't bought them already. I don't know if it's too late. Um, but yeah, we were working with a lot of people on those temporary parklets and expanding their outdoor spaces and just making them more comfortable. Um, we did not work with Rose over Maidon, but I mean, that whole alleyway over there is just I mean, an amazing example of what you can do with outdoor space that was otherwise unutilized. And so my hope is in the future that a lot of that will continue to stick around. Um, I personally live over in the Capitol Hill neighborhood and Barracks Row is like my stomping ground. It drives me crazy that they have not closed off that portion. So just to make it all outdoor dining, pedestrian space. I mean, it's, you could easily route traffic around that. But anyways, um, so that gets to a larger issue of like planning outdoor spaces in the future. I think that we need to think a lot more heavily about like car traffic, foot traffic, kind of creating these like, I don't want to say plazas, but these promenades, yeah. things like but that. Reads, right? So um, yeah. in Bethesda, they blocked off lots of streets. In Bethesda Row, Woodmont Avenue is completely blocked off. Now, Federal Realty invested there. I mean, even though the other streets on the other side of Bethesda are blocked off as well, and they look fine, but I mean, they invested money. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They put, they put planters on rollers. There's beautiful plants, installations. Um, a truck comes every Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday that it's like a VW bug, and they sell plants out of it, and they set up a cow. I mean, they do this whole thing. I, nobody misses not parking there. We don't no. need it. So I really feel that this, a silver, like a thread, a, a <laughs> minuscule thread of silver lining here is that, right, we don't need that. So we can say to uh, everybody, you can't drive on the street anymore, just like in Europe, create these plazas and let it all be outdoors. The parklets are great. Don't get me wrong. I love them. But why aren't there more streets? And they should be engaging firms like yours to design them, right? So that they're like outdoor food halls, so to speak. I know. I mean, like the European uh, plaza thing that you mentioned, I'm, I just love when you're going to a place like Spain or France or something, and largely you're all facing the central space, mm -hmm. and the restaurant is pretty much only yeah, you. and you're sitting outside facing all this activity um and people just they deal with it year long you know and they enjoy being part of that outdoor um social landscape so i i think it is going to kind of change the way that we engage in these outdoor spaces now i i do have some hesitation just as a diner who wants to go out and dine outdoors about, you know, people closing the flaps on the tent, you know, on all the sides, and then pretty soon you are in an indoor space that just happens to be outside and temporary. Um, so that gives me a little bit of a pause. Uh, but as far as the outdoor dining goes, you know, we are working with some of our clients who have um, replicable restaurant prototypes that they roll out that they're now saying like, okay, we're we're adapting the prototype to now always include outdoor space. So we're working with them to include that moving forward.
but that's great. I mean, so I was at Salt Line two weeks ago. They have the tent with the flaps, but they only have the flaps on the water side, which yep. makes sense because that makes it pretty cold. And they had heaters and it was a rainy, it was not a nice night where you were like, yeah, let's eat outside. But they set it up beautifully and it made for a lovely dining experience. And listen, they had the money, they were able to do it. But I, I think for people who can, that is the future to have these extensions mm -hmm. for, their, for their, for dining offerings. I mean, you and I talked about this before, last year, Come November, there were all these outdoor après ski igloos. Like there were all these sort of uh, winter activations that took place in December, January, and February when it was cold. And like at the Conrad Hotel, people were sitting outside, bundled up over a little you know heating thing, and uh, you know drinking not really hot you know boozy <laughs> drinks. But you know, people will do it. Yeah. Don't, don't you think? I think so. And especially now people are still gonna be dying to get out. It's like set your expectations. I think everybody's had to level set their expectations about what dining out is like now <laughs> in this mm -hmm. world we live in. And the novelty of like throwing on your faux fur or your fur coat and going out and just knowing it's going to be 20 degrees outside, but um, you know, you're going to have that experience. You're not going to stay there quite as long, but it can be kind of fun. I think if you activate it and you make it playful in the right way. I think that's a really good idea. I want to talk to you a little bit about shared spaces. Mm -hmm. The big phrase right now is ghost kitchen, which I have a major problem with because they're not ghost kitchens, they're pop-ups. Um, but how are you working with people to help them really utilize their space, right? Because uh, for a very long time, you know, if you were just doing dinner, your space sent, sat empty all day. Or the reverse, if you were a lunch slash coffee shop, right? You were open in the morning and then in the evening, nothing well with rents being what they are there you really need to have other offerings to make that you know to have the space pay for itself so do people bring you in for that um we haven't seen personally that much but of course i as like a consumer in the industry i'm so excited to see that people are utilizing their kitchens for different day parts or if not even day parts anymore it's like okay we're only going to serve uh, dinner Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, and then maybe they partner with someone who's doing a breakfast pop-up concept. And so they're able to utilize their kitchen. I think it's amazing because to go back to the early conversation where you think about the build out cost of a kitchen that may sit unused for like five to six hours a day in some restaurants, why not monetize that and give somebody else the opportunity to test a concept you know, it's an easy cost of entry for them um, mm -hmm. and see if it plays well with the with the public, how it's received and allow them to tweak their menu. Um, so I think it, it makes sense. It's really just been a smart way that we've seen people in the industry. We know they're also innovative. Right. And they have this like attitude of survival. Right. They're <laughs> they're persistent and strong. So I think it's a really creative way that they've done this. I mean, even before the pandemic, uh, had one client who was saying, 
you know, I, I want to do multiple concepts. I want the guests to see these as three different concepts, but they're going to share a kitchen in the back. So to the customer, it looks like they're three independently operating restaurants, but we're going to share the space. Um, so I'm hopeful that we'll see a little bit more of that moving forward. And I, we had this conversation about, you know, the landlord interface with that um and how how the finances look in the future but i'm kind of curious to know are our landlords going to be enticed to kind of build out these more generic kitchens when they're rather than just white boxing a restaurant space for somebody to lease and our chefs just going to have to be more flexible about what food service equipment's already in place and say like great i can make this work um so well i don't know i think that's a very interesting point um when Kip and Pin opened, I felt that that restaurant did not look like they built it to exemplify what he was serving mm -hmm. and what who he was and what he was doing. To me, that restaurant looked like when he leaves, we can just put somebody else in here. I mean, that's what that looked like to me. Right. Um, I mean, it turns out I was right. But uh, you know what I mean? But <laughs> yeah. the question is, but that's a hotel. And you know, maybe hotels think that way or they've been burned before. I, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know what happened there, but you know, when you bring in a celebrity chef, you, you know, we don't know the inner workings of that stuff. So I, I do think you're right that we're gonna see more maybe generic spaces because people are gun shy. They're afraid of the concepts. They're afraid of what's going to make it and what's not going to make it. What I will be curious to see, and you would know this better than, than me, is, you know, I feel like for a while there, all those restaurant spaces were massive, right? You know, like the Joe's and the Carmine's and um, that poor, what's that, um, Danny Meyer's uh, space that was like open for like a month. In Navy Yard, beautiful. Yeah, Maliano Mare, right? Yes. Milino, yes. Milino, right? I, I mean, so you have all these massive spaces, and I just don't know how we. So the good news about a massive space, or like Nobu, for example, is that yeah. So you had seating for three hundred. Now you can see a hundred with lots of space. So right. there's sort of like good news, bad news, maybe. Right. Or are we looking at more? intermediate spaces and then incorporating that outdoor space and making that outdoor space more year round. Well, I know, you know, unfortunately we've seen so many places close and I think unfortunately we're gonna continue to see that through the tough winter months. So mm -hmm. you'll have spaces come available, large and small, I think. Um, and people, if they've got the, the cash or the investment money will sweep those up. But I think we're gonna have to take a hard look at larger restaurant spaces that are closing into that earlier part of the conversation about when you are going to lease, is that size restaurant still appropriate for the market right now? Are people mm -hmm. willing to take a risk on a space that large? Um, does it have outdoor space attached to it? Um, would you demise it up into smaller spaces? And if so, do you have the infrastructure for food service exhaust and so forth? Um, so I, I don't know, it's of course hard to predict, like if we'll see this shift temporarily in leasing away from so much restaurant space on the ground plane and integrating other amenities uh, or other retail spaces that might be convenient um, to people in the neighborhood. So 
yeah, that's, I think that's all at play. It's very difficult to predict though. Well, but you did bring up in the beginning of the show about how you and your team work together to make sure you're, you're keeping the neighborhood in mind, right? And it's one of the things that whenever I talk to um, restaurateurs or chefs and they open up a restaurant, I'm like, how are you, how are you feeding your neighborhood? Because at the end of the day, if you want to be a destination restaurant, the first thing you need to be able to do is feed those immediately around you. And if you're not, then you have to ask yourself, like, can you sustain otherwise? Because you should always have something for your neighborhood, right? Like that, it's so important. And I think going forward um, with takeaway and things of that nature, I, I believe it's really going to be even, um, more so. The last thing I wanted to ask you about before we uh, wrap it up is what do you think about, um, because we mentioned bars, what do you think about bars and, and like, are we going to see more like big, massive, like DACAs? Like, what do you think about that as um, a part of our landscape? I think that's really interesting. I think kind of the open beer hall, beer garden style thing uh, certainly makes a lot of sense to everybody right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been interesting to see uh, Devin Gong. So we designed Copycat and Astoria for him. Mm -hmm. um, love, love, love their food. Love how they have been, uh, their food transitions perfect to carry out. So I think part of this is if you're a bar operator, do you have great carryout food that can kind of sustain you as well? I mean, the carryout cocktails, who doesn't like absolutely love that? And like, now that it's out there, they can't take it away from us, right? So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so I mean, I'm hopeful that that will help bars sustain for a little bit, but the idea that, um, you know, some bars are just for volume and drinking and it's a rowdy situation. I mean, they're gonna have a harder time to come back. But uh, in the model of Astoria, it's more of a service bar experience where your bartender is the person that comes to your table that is your waiter. Um, so I'm, I think that they were really well positioned. So it'll be interesting to see how that moves through. I'm also curious about, are we gonna have more of an out attitude with alcohol and developments or if it's private property, are you gonna be able to do a walk-up window situation order a drink and kind of roam around again, like and kind of shop and uh, see how that plays out. So yeah. That's my question, when we talk about these streeteries, right? So if we can all eat on the plaza, so to speak, can I get a drink from restaurant A, but get the food from restaurant B and still sit down? I yep. don't know, it's gonna be interesting, I, you know? I mean, all those, those liquor license attorneys attorneys out there that work with restaurants. I know two really good ones. <laughs> Fill us in like, cause yeah, I feel like that would be great. I know a lot of people are setting up like outdoor bars, you know, for the winter season too. So, um, so that's exciting. All right. Well, listen, Allison, um, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, this is Nikki Nellis on industry night with Booty and the Beast. I mean, Booty of the Beast, oh my God, wrong show. Industry <laughs> Night on Real Fun DC. I have, I have my fingers in too many pots. Uh, so Allison uh, Cook with uh, Core Architecture and Design. I can't tell you how much I appreciate hearing just sort of about all of it because I think so many people love the restaurant industry, right? We love it. We're foodies at heart. Um, 
but you know, we, we all play, um, like Monday morning quarterback when we go into a restaurant about like, why did they do this? And why did they do that? And I think knowing how it works is really important before you express an opinion, uh, especially about somebody else's business. So again, Nikki Nellis, Industry Night on Real Fun DC. Don't forget, you can always ask Alexa. Hey, Alexa, play Real Fun DC and you can hear me on Industry Night. Thank you again for joining me next week. We're going vegan. I got Nicole Marquis coming on air to talk about Hip City Veg and how plant dining should be more a part of your life. We'll see you next week. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Real Fun DC.